Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we want to sing your praises this morning. We want our voices and our hearts to be united in that with one voice that, Lord, you are Lord. And we thank you for doing so for us this morning. We invite you to join with us as we celebrate and express our love for you. Lord, I pray that you uh, just be with us in a mighty way this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 9, 42 through 50, as we look at the salty believer, when he cut off his right arm, with a very sharp power tool, a man who now calls himself One Hand Jason, let everyone believe that it was an accident. But he had for months had tried different means of cutting and crushing the limb that never quite felt like it was his own. Training himself on first aid so he wouldn't bleed to death, even practicing on animal parts sourced from a butcher. He says, my goal was to get the job done with no hope of reconstruction or reattachment. And I wanted some method that I could actually bring myself to do. His goal was to become disabled. People like Jason have been classified as transabled, feeling like imposters in their bodies, their arms and legs in full working order. This is a neurological disorder that's characterized by an intense and long-standing desire for amputation of a specific limb. It can be associated with a body integrity identity disorder in which otherwise sane and rational individuals express a strong specific desire for the amputation of healthy limbs and injuries are caused by desperate attempts to get the unwanted limbs to be amputated. Some will purposely induce infections on the limbs or even harm themselves by going so far as to partially sawing off limbs so medical professionals do not have any other choice other than to remove that limb. Today, Jesus is going to tell us to consider the very same thing. Mark in his gospel has been using the life and teaching of Jesus to help us understand the values of the kingdom. As you look on the screen, we've learned five of these in the last few chapters in the last few weeks. The first one is that salvation comes through suffering. That reconciliation comes through repentance. That power comes through prayer. Honor comes through humility. And as we saw last week, reward comes through receiving all of God's children. In today's passage, Jesus is going to demand the removal of obstacles that will require radical surgery. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the gospel of Mark and we thank you for your word. So I pray now as we open it up that you would help us understand as we read through it. May your Holy Spirit give us understanding and and help us to interpret what it means and apply it to our lives to each and every one of us this morning. Lord, I pray that you be with me. Let me speak with the confidence of that of which I've studied and which your Holy Spirit has helped me to illuminate. But then, Lord, in all things, let us always be able to tell the difference between what's my mere opinion, but yet what is truth. But through it all, Lord, let us not quench the Spirit. Lord, that all things may be done 
to the glory of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you three warnings and commands that are found in this passage of Mark chapter 9, 42 through 50. The first warning and command we're going to see is do not cause another believer to stumble. Do not cause another believer to stumble or to sin. Look at the verse with me. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Pretty strong language from Jesus. The term little ones here depicts the disciples of Christ that we've seen in verses 37 and 41. It's speaking not of little children, but other believers in Christ. Jesus says we're to receive them, we're to be like them, we're to humble ourselves like these other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the value of those that are in the kingdom. But Jesus is warning them not to cause another believer to stumble into sin. The sin could mean to prevent them from acting in Jesus' name as they tried to do last week in stopping the man from exercising demons. It could cause one to stumble or disable them in ministering or to cause them to lose their faith or to be shaken in their faith. He says to do so is to put one's eternal life in jeopardy. The warning is simple, is that you would be better off dying a terrible death than to do so. He gives the illustration of a large millstone. This would be a big stone that would kind of look like a donut. It would have a hole in the middle in which a donkey would take and it would carry it around. So it's a large one pulled by a donkey that is put around one's neck and then thrown into the ocean. For those of you on the East Coast, you might hear of it. It's like concrete shoes. Let him sleep or swim with the fishes type thing. Jesus is saying it is better to do that than to cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble or to sin or to be shaken in their faith. Paul warns these original readers of the Gospel of Mark, the Roman church. He says, decide right now never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in a way of a brother. I want to share with you how you can be a stumbling block, how you and I could be in danger of doing this very thing. And we do it each and every day, many times without thinking. Sometimes it is a conscience effort. It could be one, direct temptation. We could engage another in sin through gossip or cheating or stealing or presenting some other type of way in which they're not trusting in the promises of God. It could be direct temptation. But it also could be something as benign, so to speak, as indirect temptation. When we provoke someone, that's why the Scripture says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Or provoking your spouse to not trust you or provoking someone else to that type of sin. If it could be a failure to meet a need or respond to a need or exposing them to some type of sin from your own life. It could also be in setting a sinful example. I think this is something that many times we feel guilty of. The Bible says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're to be example in word and deed. We're to be salt and light. But when you and I, when our lives, when our walk does not match our talk, we can lead someone else to stumble and to fall. Fourth one is one we don't think of very often. It's flaunting our liberty. Our liberty to live our life in the grace of God thinking that, well, we can do things knowing that God will forgive us. He says, welcome the one who is weak in faith. 
and not to quarrel over opinions and not to despise the one who may abstain from certain activities. There's many things in which people say, well, we don't do these things. The Bible calls that that could be weak, but he says you're not to cause one of those children, not one of those Christians, to give up if that's their conscience. He commands the Corinthian church to take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In many cases, our insistence on living out our liberty can cause another brother or sister to falter, to weaken in the faith. And then here's one that I think that many times falls right at our doorstep, and that's failing to lead them in righteousness. Failing to lead them in righteousness. And this is why it's so important. This is why we encourage church membership. This is why we feel it's so important. Hebrews tells us, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works. I don't think that's a consideration of most of us here this morning. There are not many times we come in saying, how can I consider someone else this morning? People come in sometimes and say, well, I didn't get anything out of the message. Well, okay. For one, I say you didn't come hungry. You didn't empty yourself. And another is, is when you come in, it's not about you receiving, it's about you giving. It's about laying down all things. As you were shaking hands and doing your hugging, how many of these people have you considered during the week through your prayer and how you might encourage them and strengthen them? So he says there, consider how to stir one another up, to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together. That's why this is so important. It's not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, he tells us, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is drawing much closer than it was when he wrote this 2,000 years ago. So many times you and I can cause a brother or sister to stumble or to lack in their faith because we're just failing to lead them in righteousness. We're not considering that you here have a responsibility. You here have a ministering role, just as I do, just as the worship team or Randy or other elder does. All of us have a role in ministering this morning. So you and I need to be careful about being stumbling blocks. The reason why we must be careful is because this being a stumbling block puts your eternal destiny at pearl. Because it shows a lack of concern for a fellow believer. It's forsaking the law of Christ to love one another. It's the two commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we fail to do that, we fail the law of Christ. In essence, it shows that we're not truly a follower of Christ. So I would encourage you this morning to examine your life to ensure that you're not causing another believer to sin. For you may be doing that consciously or unconsciously. And let me tell you, your spouse counts if she's a Christ follower. Your children count if they say that they love Jesus and they're following Him. And so there's no exclusion clause in there. I can love everyone and I can encourage everyone, but my spouse, I don't have to. My children, I don't have to. Or my relatives, I don't have to. There are no exclusions. No one is excluded. If they're in the family of God, we're to love them, we're to consider them, we're to encourage them, we're to make sure that they do not stumble. And when they do, we're to be there ready to lift them up and to help them walk. So he causes, he says, do not cause another believer to stumble. One of our prayers should be this morning, let me not be an obstacle to anyone today 
And I know that this happens because I know exactly what mine is. The way that I sometimes cause people to stumble is my skepticism. I have a skepticism and a doubting attitude many times. And so I have to fight through that, what people will say. And, and sometimes I find that I can discourage someone very quickly when someone says something. Now, the thing is, is I don't do it on purpose. I don't try to be mean, but I'm doing it by being, I'm the one who's telling them the truth, right? I'm just telling them the truth. What does the Bible tell us? Tell the truth, speak the truth in what? In love. And so I realize that speaking the truth takes discernment. Telling the truth is not the Trump type way of just saying, oh, you're a loser. You know, you're dumb. You know, there's nothing you could do. But how many times do, maybe not those words, but do our attitudes and our actions convey that to someone? I've been guilty. Causing another brother and sister to stumble. The Bible says is a dangerous thing. He says you're better off just sleeping with the fishes because it will be dangerous for you. Your eternal life is at balance. So not only do not cause another believer to stumble, but in verse 43, he gives us another warning and command where he says that radical surgery is needed to enter into the kingdom of God. Again, you and I, radical surgery is needed if you and I are going to enter into the kingdom of God. Look at what he says. And if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Look at verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. Help me out. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. In verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. For where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. The theme of these seven verses is simple. It's to remove anything that would prevent you from inheriting eternal life. One pastor wrote, If someone were to ask you, what is the most dangerous spiritual responsibility to neglect, what would you say? If someone were to come and say, what is the most dangerous spiritual responsibility that you cannot neglect as a Christian, what would you say? Some might say, well, scripture reading, prayer, evangelism. That's a good one. Hey, listening to preaching or attending corporate worship. And it's not that you'd be wrong. For God commands all believers to pursue those things. Those are non-negotiable, by the way. But there's another spiritual responsibility that we often look. It's the intimate, unpleasant, and exhausting duty of killing sin. God has called us to kill our sin. Jesus here is using hyperbole. It's an intentional overstatement to emphasize the necessity of rigorous self-discipline and radically removing of sin from the disciples' life before it leads to judgment. The command to commit self-mutilation evokes strong imagery and emotion. We can't even comprehend that he would actually cause us to do it. It's very similar where he says, you must hate your mother and father. It brings strong emotion. He says, wait, what, what do you mean by that? It's the same type of hyperbole. He's trying to give us an image here. He's trying to bring us to a point where we recognize the seriousness 
The reason for this command and warning is to recognize that sin is serious. And again, I would share with you the reason why many of us do not consider each other. The reason that many of us still struggle with sin is because we don't recognize the seriousness of sin. We don't understand the devastation sin brings. Now, many of you are touched by that devastation. Your life is filled with moments in which you know that have caused great pain and hurt in your life, but still, we just paper over it many times. We try to look at other situations, blame it on other things, but many times it's our own sin. This passage is pointing out the severity of sin. John Owen, a famous and faithful Puritan, warned, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's a good one to write down. You can write in your Bible right there. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's an old anonymous quote that goes something to the fact that sin will take you farther than you ever want to go. It will cost you more than you'll ever want to pay. That's so true. Jesus is demanding the ceasing of all sinful activities. It's a radical removal of obstacles. It's a radical surgery of the heart. Jesus knows that it's not the cutting of the hand that's going to save you from sin. It's not the plucking out of your eyes. No, it's the motivation of our hearts. We know that it's the intents of our heart. And he's saying that you've got to go deep in there and you've got to root it out. You and I will struggle with sin probably for the rest of our lives. Not probably, you will. But he says that you have to take it and take it seriously. I believe one of the problems in the American church today, just speaking of us, is that we haven't taken the seriousness of sin. We just gloss over it. We overlook it. We think that we can control sin. We think, well, I can keep it right there, and it's in control, but there are times when I need it, and I deserve it, so then I'll play with it. We think that we're always in control. That's a fool's lie. For it always has us enslaved. Jesus is demanding the ceasing of all sinful activities and to cut it out, to mutilate ourselves, to recognize the severity of it. The scripture uses commands such as put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why should we do this? Because on account of those things, the wrath of God is coming. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you understand that our, not only our eternal life is in the balance of that, but those of our, our spouses and our children and our loved ones and our neighbors, our favorite waitresses and those who work beside us. The wrath of God is coming. And I have to find there are many times we're sitting there watching movies and TVs and other things and we're laughing and we're joking and we're finding guilty pleasures in those types of things, but yet we never realize that the piper will be paid. We need to recognize the seriousness of sin. He reminds believers that in these things we once walked. We were living in them. But he says, now we must put them all away when you were living in them. He says, we need to put all these away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices instead. Instead, we no longer walk. We need to put those things away instead we're to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Part of our sanctification process, part of our salvation, 
is taking the saw to those things that are leading us away from God and cutting them out. The death mentioned in Scripture here is hell. Jesus tells the disciples that it's better to mutilate yourself in this life than to be in a throne into hell where he says where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Greek word here refers to the valley of Hinnom. It's near Jerusalem. It's a place where they used to do child sacrifices. Now it was then at that time a garbage dump where fires constantly burn, furnishing a graphic symbol of eternal torment. Let me get this for you. You must recognize this and realize this is the truth that you must crystallize in your mind and heart. Hell is real. Hell is hot. Hell is painful. And hell is eternal. Don't let anyone tell you that it isn't. Our daily prayer is found in Matthew 6.13 where Jesus instructed us to pray daily, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. I know those are some of the first words that come out of my mouth as I wake into this world each morning. Lord, do not protect me. Do not lead me into temptation. Help me fight sin this morning, this afternoon, this evening. I know that I'm going to face it. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 6. Again, Paul is writing to these original readers. Mark was written to the Roman church, to the believers who were undergoing some difficult, difficult times. Paul continues to write to them a little bit after the Gospel of Mark is written. But in Romans chapter 6, look at verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And see, we think that we're in control, but we are actually enslaved. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Our hands, our eyes, our mouth, our ears, they have a different purpose. For sin will have no dominion over you. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you're under grace. He says, let not sin reign in your body. You see, you and I need to deal with sin in our own lives so as not to only hurt ourselves, but also others. Many of our children and our spouses and others are hurt, are devastated by our own sin, are they not? You can say amen to that. We recognize that. Some of you are devastated and had your life turned by the the sins of others before you. Jesus ends the warning with the promise in verse 49 that everyone will be salted with fire. That's an interesting phrase, many different interpretations. I thought the ESV study Bible gave one invitation that I believe was very helpful. Listen as I read, it says, this statement being salted with fire. It says, everyone will be salted with fire. This statement views believers as a sacrifice to God against the Old Testament background in which was salt was always accompanied by the sacrifice along with fire. But it understands the salt to represent purification by the fire of suffering and hardship which is related to the costliness of discipleship implied in the willingness to give up even a hand or an eye to serve the Creator. In other words, being willing to give up anything and also to suffer for Christ's sake for something costly and painful will come into everyone's life. You think the cost is martyrdom from someone else. 
Or maybe the pain is the fact of us martyring our own hearts and minds. The salt and the fire also make the sacrifice pleasing to God and has a purifying effect on the believer. As salt does not destroy but preserves, and so the suffering will not destroy the believer. R.T. France, a theologian pastor over in England, writes that salted with fire seems to evoke the imagery of temple sacrifice. But now the victims who are salted are now not the ones presenting the worship, but now they're the worshipers themselves. Romans 12 tells us this, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. No longer are we presenting a sacrifice that cost us nothing but maybe money, but it's now ourselves as we present ourselves and say, salt me, purify me with fire. I'm willing to pay the cost. First Peter tells his writer, his listeners, he says, in this you must rejoice. Though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the testing genuineness of your faith, it's more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are we seeing here? That if you and I are not willing to do radical surgery of the heart, if you and I are not involved in killing sin on a daily basis, you and I stand with no hope. It gives proof that you and I are not truly Christ's followers. Remember, the first value of the kingdom is salvation comes through what? Through suffering. And reconciliation comes through repentance. That's the killing of sin, recognizing for what it is and what it does, not only to you and to I, but to all those that are around our sphere of influence. And also that it holds itself as an opposition against God's rebellion against Him, as we ourselves shake our fists and say, I will remain in my sin, but yet at the same time demand that He saves us. The Bible says that's not how it works. So not only are we not to cause another believer to stumble, not only are we to put death to sin, but thirdly, you and I need to be a salty Christian. We need to be a salty Christian. Look at verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. What we're seeing there, when I say be a salty Christian, I'm not telling us to take salt baths. I'm not telling us to start rubbing ourselves with all those types of things. But what I'm using it is salty is an old slang term used to describe someone who is seasoned through experience such as a sailor, a military man, frontier tap, uh, trappers, and old western scouts. What I'm saying here is that you and I need to be salty Christians and that you and I need to be experienced Christians living out the values of the kingdom of God. We're not to be children tossed to and fro. We're not to continue to play with sin as we did when we had no knowledge of God. In a domestic setting, salt is used as a preservative to keep food from spoiling. We know this. It's used for flavoring, but it was also used as a cleansing agent in those days. Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, informed those who chose to follow him that you and I, as followers of Christ, are salt of the earth. 
And he warns us, though, that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You cannot. Once it loses its effectiveness, it's no longer good for anything, he says, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. One ancient writer noted that the world cannot endure without salt. And I would say that's where God has put us here today. You and I preserve this world. We are the salt of this world. But once it's lost its properties, it's no longer effective. It's worthless. And I believe there are many people who have proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ, who would say, I once said a prayer, or I once was baptized, I once was in VBS, who are no longer worth anything. Their testimony is worthless. They have lived their lives in such a way and engaged in sin in such a way that their testimony is worthless. You and I know people like that. Maybe once we were like that. But the Bible says for a salty Christian, for a believer, it's not. We're going to be so filled with it in the fact that we too are a preservative in this world. We're here for flavoring. We're the taste of God. Remember, taste and see that God is good. We're the aroma of God. And yet, as a cleansing agent, we're here to expose the darkness. That's what our life should do. Someone ought to be able to look at the way in your workplace. They should look at you in the way that you live in your neighborhood. They ought to look at the way that you just conduct yourself and say, there is something different about them. They don't react the same way that others do. They're not gossiping. They're not talking back. They, they seem to be something set apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. As you and I are set apart, but yet we say it, but our lives are not so. Our vocabulary, our watching habits, our pleasure, our entertainment is no different from the world. The Bible says it's worthless. For one day you will face the judgment. Theologian R.T. France once again notes that salt points to the sacrificial character of discipleship. Let me ask you, are you ready to do that? Are you ready to live a life of sacrifice? Which means surrendering your liberties, surrendering your sin, and surrender to living a life that God has called us to, which leads us to value number six, is that spiritual growth comes through self-denial. Spiritual growth comes only through self-denial, through self-killing, self-mutilation of killing the heart. Sacrifice and self-denial are part and parcel of the Christian life, and it's valued in the kingdom of God. Without it, you will find yourself coming up short. So what did this mean to the disciples when Jesus said it? Well, D.A. Carson remarks that the argument was clear. Jesus' followers must become like children in humility if they are entered in the kingdom. And those who receive such little ones, the disciples of Christ, because they belong to him, in effect, they receive Jesus. Those who reject them, causing them to stumble, are threatened with condemnation. The things causing Jesus' people to stumble are inevitable and yet damning at the same time. But the disciples themselves must beware. Failure to deal radically with similar sin in their own lives betrays their allegiance to the world and threatens them with the eternal fire of hell. Jesus' disciples must deal as radically with pride. 
For those that to the Roman church who would receive this from Mark, this warning and encouragement would have special meaning to them. For they are undergoing persecution and trials and suffering. In some ways, they're not receiving. They would be in danger of receiving another Christian who is outside their boundaries. This could be a spy. This could be someone else. But to receive them is to receive Christ. They too must fight pride and die to self. Even in a day when to say that you were a Christian could cost you your life. But let me go here. What does this mean for you and I? Because this is where we need to get down to. It means that you and I must thoroughly examine ourselves. We must examine our actions and our motives to make sure that you and I are not causing someone to sin or practicing sin ourselves. And I'm wondering if you're up to doing that. I want to encourage you, this is the time to do so. You and I must be ready and willing to cut off anything that leads us to sin. Anything short of that leads to eternal damnation. Listen, the scripture warns us that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He tells us that no one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. He tells us whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Are you seeing the theme here that John the Apostle was writing? You cannot claim to be a Christian and continue in a lifelong pattern of sin. He says it is evident of who are the children of God and who are the children of devil. What is that pattern? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So I'm with you here this morning. Are you born of God or are you born of devil? There is no middle. To practice a lifelong pattern of sin shows that you're not on God's team. I want to challenge you because we have a way of living in sin and practicing sin and excusing our sin where we believe that we are Christians, but yet we still do not live it out. Here's the challenge. I do not want anyone to leave. I don't want to stand before the Father and one day give account of those that He has given to us as elders and say, I didn't know that. I didn't see that. I didn't warn them. I didn't encourage them. I didn't consider them at all. Here's the conclusion. We looked at the what. We're to kill sin at all costs. Kill sin. You don't talk about it. You don't look at it. You don't look how you contain it. It's not about putting a fence around it. It's about killing it. It's about rooting it up and it's about pulling it out all that it takes. We looked at the why because if you and I do not, our eternal destiny is at stake. But I want to look at the how. How are you and I to kill sin? Who, how are you and I to make sure that we don't cause another brother to sin? Here, I want your attention, please. This is important. Number one, you need to bring sin into light by confessing it to God and others. Your sin loves darkness. It loves anonymity. It loves to be hidden. You need to confess it to your spouse. You need to confess it to another brother and sister. I'm not saying you need to come up here and share us your deepest, darkest secret. I wouldn't want to share mine with you. 
and I have mine myself. There is sin that I'm still cutting off. Sometimes I'm coming in and you can't even see the spiritual band-aids that I have all over the place. We need to be killing it by bringing it into light and confessing it. Until we do, it will hide in the dark recesses of our hearts. In the same way, I would share with those of you who consider each other. It's not to ignore the sin in a brother and sister. For in that same way, you are causing them to stumble. You and I need to be aware of this. And we need to look at that as love. Number two, we need to begin to starve the sin, bringing into submission. So many of us continue to feed it. It's like that old stray cat. We used to have a bunch of cats around here. The more you fed them, the more they came. We need to get rid of the cats. Well, there's no way to get rid of the cats. You know, the same way we have them in our neighborhood. You, you know, you keep your garbage outside, you don't put a lid on it, and you're complaining that you have raccoons. Well, that's why. You and I continually feed our sin. And I find the ways in which I have done that myself in my life. And all of a sudden, I find all of a sudden that pressure is so hot. I'm like, man, this is too much, but I've been warming myself up for a long time. Why? By allowing myself to feed it, to think that I'm in control. You and I need to cut off anything that might cause us or a brother or sister in Christ to stumble in sin. This might include relationships. This may mean you need to say, I need to cut this person off. This person is not good in my life. He causes me to sin. She causes me to sin. This person is not good for my life. It might include media, a phone, a tablet, a computer, technology. It'll include an attitude. It'll include a thought process and other activities and even places of entertainment that we go to. Anything that might feed anything that causes us to doubt the goodness and the promises and the commands of Christ. So not only do we need to bring the sin into the light by confessing it, not only do we need to starve that sin and kill it and all that we can do, but we need to pray for a greater measure of faith. Again, I want to get this once again. We need to pray for a greater measure of faith to fight the sin and trust in the promises of God because you and I will fail. We will fall. There'll be times that our struggle with sin will be overwhelming. When that happens, you and I must go to the gospel. It's not about us working harder. If you're getting that from my message, let's stop there. Because you're misunderstanding. It's not about you and I working harder. It's about us resting in God's promises and seeing those things that are true and seeing those things are false and lopping off and killing and unrooting those things that bring the weeds and the things in our life that are not right. Then number four, you and I need to look to the finished work of Christ and the hope of the total eradication of sin in the new heavens and new earth. You see, there's sin in my life that I'll probably be killing my whole life. It'll be a fight. We'll be pulling up. We'll be pulling up. Why? Because in this salvation that we have, we are not yet freed from the presence of sin, right? So it will be there. If I eradicate one fully, then there might be another one that pops up. It'll be for eternal. But I need to rest that Christ has accomplished what I could not. Amen? We sung about it earlier in some great songs. 
You need to recognize that it's Christ that has finished the work. You and I need to look for that time, pray for that hope, look for that hope, rest in that hope that one day that we will totally be eradicated from the presence of sin. Amen? That's the hope we have. That's why I'm able to continue to pull, why I'm continuing to cut, why I'm continuing to starve. Why? Because one day it will be done. Oh, Maranatha, all that it would become soon. But until that day, let us be about the Lord's business. Turn, if you would, and then I'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You must see this. You must see this to see the hope. You must see this to see the gospel. You must see this to see God's mercy and God's love, but yet His warnings and His commands together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look with me at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither those in sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor sinners will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. You and I must realize that there is a cost to sin and a cost to a rebellion against God. But look at this. And some were such of you. But then the greatest word that's in this passage, but, but, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, made right with God in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If that's you this morning, if that's your testimony, let's be killing sin. For those that have recognized the power of this verse, and say we will no longer present our members as unrighteousness, but we will put to death those things that rise up against the most holy God. With every head bowed and every head closed, I would ask for you to take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray, and then respond to what God may be calling you to do this morning when he says, do not cause another brother to stumble. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then to be a salted believer, would you respond to the work of the Holy Spirit? Father, we had some harsh words from Scripture today. But if with those warnings, we must be sure that there is a seriousness, there is severity to sin that cannot be hidden. It must be shown, it must be warned, and it must be demonstrated that, Lord, that those who rebel against you, Lord, will face an eternity in separation from you in a place that is very real. And so, Father, I pray that as we look, that we recognize the severity of sin. Father, that we do not put our, our soul in jeopardy, in danger. But, Lord, that we would live out the proof, Lord, that such were some of you. But now we're sanctified. For those that proclaim Christ, give them the desire to do so to do today. Show them that their election is sure. Show them that they are your children. If there is any here this morning, Lord, that are struggling with sin, Lord, I pray that you would just give them the grace to do one of those four things. Maybe it's all, but maybe there's one that they need to do. Maybe it's starving and killing that sin. Maybe it's sharing it with someone else to walk side by side with them and help them with it. Maybe it's looking at the rest, Father, that you give to your children. In any case, Lord, bring them to your altar this morning. Let them see that, that there's forgiveness for those who confess their sins. For you are faithful and you are just to forgive us. And Father, I pray that your work may be done in each and everyone's life this morning. Let us be salty believers in you. Let us live out lives.
that show the value of the kingdom, that others may come to know you and worship you as God. We pray and know that we're not sufficient for these things, so make us this morning through your Son. We pray this in his name. God's people said, Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.